Acts. Well, I'm actually just going to do the scripture reading for today. I'm going to read Psalm 109. And we're going to explain, I'm going to explain why Psalm 109 today, uh, but I just preface this with saying there, there are a few Psalms in the book of Psalms that sometimes even in like Christian psalm books or hymn books or whatever, they, they, they get chopped off. They get left on the cutting room floor because they contain things that disturb us. Uh, and this is one of them. So we have some time. We're going to unpack it, but let's read either the top or the, let's say the first or the second probably most difficult psalm for me personally, but it's the word of God. So we're going to read it. Psalm 109, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O Lord my God, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and put, are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one 
to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Let's pray. Father, we read Psalm 109, and we don't really know what to do with it. We know what to do with parts of it, Lord, but there's a, there's a harshness to it. It's difficult. Uh, Lord, we pray today as we look at this psalm that you would keep us from error, keep us in your truth, Lord. May I only speak the truth. If I say anything, anything that's a misrepresentation of you and your heart here, may you wipe it, all, wipe it from all of our minds, Lord. Don't let it penetrate our hearts. But may we walk away with a deeper understanding of this psalm and, and, and so have a deeper understanding of you. And what to do, Lord, when we are full of rage, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when is the last time you were angry? Not just angry. Like, angry. Full of rage. I can't answer that for you. A little bit of rage going on back there. <laughs> I love it. The Bible has a nuanced view of anger. Uh, a verse in the New Testament that captures the dynamic well is Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. I'll just read them. Uh, the words of Paul, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger can be dangerous, and it can certainly be sinful. Anger is hard to control. It's hard not to be led astray by. And if harbored and allowed to fester, Paul tells us it's an opportunity for the devil himself to grab a foothold in your life and in mine. I think most of us, that checks out for most of us. Yes, there's caution, a healthy caution about anger. But the scripture also declares that you can be angry and not sin. Anger can be good and right. It's not inherently or necessarily sinful or wrong. Feeling anger is actually a necessary and good part of living in a sin-stained world. When, when acts of evil happen to God's image bearers, which is every single person without exception on this planet, um, the proper emotion, emotional response is anger. Uh, in his book on praying the Psalms, I, I love this quote, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote, the psalmists are angry people. In the presence of God, they've realized that the world is not a benign place where everyone is doing their best to get along with others, and that if we all just try a little harder, things are going to turn out all right. Sometimes we think that. The psalmists know it's not the case. Anger is a valid and necessary response to any time we have a clear-eyed look at the world around us. In another great book, I think I mentioned it last week, by, by these two authors, Alistair Groves and Winston Smith, it's called Untangling Emotions. Uh, they, uh, they write this, they say, Anger says that is wrong. It's a fundamentally moral emotion. 
When you're angry, what is happening inside is this. Your heart is observing the scene before you and crying out that something you love is being treated unjustly. Anger always passes judgment, parentheses, and judgments, unlike a judgmental spirit, they can be right as well as wrong. Anger is right to say that some things are terribly wrong, yet such anger, like all emotions, flows from love. This is why there's such a, such a thing as good anger. While it's counterintuitive to most of us, the Bible actually presents God himself as the angriest character in all of scripture. Yet he is the angriest precisely because he's also the most loving character in all of scripture. To love deeply is to be deeply angry when our loved ones are victims of injustice. There it is. Here's the bottom line. If you genuinely care about people, you will feel anger at some point. Um, and if, you, if you've never been deeply angry, it might be because you, you haven't opened yourself up to, to relationships or, or even to empathizing with strangers the way you ought to. And so we turn to Psalm 109. We, we mentioned last week as we teed it up, we're, we're going to spend a few weeks uh, examining the Psalms. Uh, in, there are a million angles you could take on, on a book as big and as wide as the Psalms, but for us, we're going we're gonna to take the specific angle of, uh, of using the Psalms as, as a way, uh, a model for bringing our, the whole spectrum of human emotional experience into conversation with God. How to feel with God and then turn that, those feelings into prayers, bring, to set those feelings at his feet. Psalm 109, like all the other psalms, is an example of this, in this case, with a seething anger, maybe even a hatred when you read some of those words. So Psalm 109 tells us in the, in the little heading there, it was written by David, Israel's greatest king. Um, for the choir master, so this, this was a psalm that was intended for singing, so <laughs> that just made me chuckle as I was <laughs> studying this, I was like, what? when are we singing this psalm? Corey, new song. Let's adapt this. Written for the choir master. It fits the broad category of lament psalms, psalms that, that bring attention to God, to, to things that are distressing and wrong and and difficult in the world, but more narrowly, it falls in the category of what uh, sometimes scholars call the imprecatory psalms. I don't know if you ever heard that term before, but it, to imprecate means to call down curses on someone. So you could even call these the cursing psalms, psalms of cursing. That's weird. <laughs> That's a biblical category, isn't it? Um, this type of psalm generally disturbs Christians. It generally disturbs me to confess to, confess to you. Um, and as I said, a whole bunch of books on the psalms or, or, or whatever, they omit these imprecatory psalms because we just don't know what to do with them. It'd be easier just to leave that out. I don't, I don't want to have to explain this whole thing, give all this context for this. But again, again, uh, Eugene Peterson, same book, he says this. He says, these folks who would cut these things out are wrong-headed because our hate needs to be prayed, not suppressed. Hate is our emotional link with the spirituality of evil. It's the volcanic eruption of outrage when the holiness of being, ours or another's, has been violated. It's also the ugliest and most dangerous of our emotions, the hair trigger on a loaded gun. 
Embarrassed by the ugliness and fearful of the murderous, we commonly neither admit or pray our hate. We deny it and suppress it. But if it's not admitted, it can quickly and easily metamorphose into the evil that provokes it. I think that's spot on. So God, in his wisdom, uh, d- decided to move ancient Israel and the early Christian church to keep these cursing poems, these imprecatory psalms, in the psalm book, which makes them our scripture. So rather than pretend that they're not there, and, and honestly, what, if we do that, what will happen is all of us one day will be like, hey, why don't we read through the psalms, and then we'll come across these, and we'll be like, what? Why did my pastor never tell me about this? We don't want to do that. So instead of accidentally coming across them and getting scandalized every time, I wanted to look at one of the most difficult ones head on. It was probably either this one or Psalm 137. Write down Psalm 137 if you want to go find the other one that really is just hard. It's just hard. Maybe you don't want to do that right now. That's okay. But, but we landed on this one. So let's get into it. I want to go where we, well, here, here's what I think most of us do when we read a psalm like this. We read, the, we read it, and then we instantly, our attention just goes straight to verses, uh, I think we had them up on the screen, verses like 6 through 15 there. Um, we, we, we just zero and we go, okay, this, this is offensive. This is weird. This is wrong. So let's just, let's just go straight there. This is what we all do anyway. This is what I did when I started studying, prepping for this. What's going on here? Let's just call it for what it is. David, David is, is under distress. He's, he has these enemies that are out to get him, and we'll talk about why and, and more about that here in a second. But David's response is to cry out to God to bring, like, complete calamity to this man and to his family. So he, he wants this man to be found guilty he wants his prayers, and there's some debate whether that's prayer to God or like his, his plea in the courtroom to be counted as sin. He wants his life to be cut short. He wants the man to be replaced. And then here's where it gets really ugly. He wants his children to suffer. That's where we all start to go, oh my gosh, what is this? May his children be fatherless. May his wife be a widow. May the children have to go beg for food because their house has been left in ruin. May the creditor come and take everything so there's nothing left for the family. May strangers come, take it all. And you know what? May there not even be anyone to extend kindness, nor even a shred of pity to his fatherless children. And may his generation end May the family lines cease. May his name be done within a generation. And you know what? I know, God, you're gracious and merciful. I know that from the Torah. But you know what? Don't forgive his sin. Or even the sin of his mother. Let those sins be before the Lord continually. That he would the Lord would actively work to keep their memory from ever repopulating. This is dark. This is dark. Let's call it for what it is. Why is it so tough to read? Well, we're Christians. 
And we know Jesus, and we know the Sermon on the Mount. Most of us have heard this a million times. Matthew 5, 34, uh, 43 through 45. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. Or Paul in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So we even have biblical warrant to look at this and go, David, what are you doing? How could we possibly pray this? This is supposed to be like the instruction, the prayer and, and worship book of, of, for, for, the, for Christians. What do we do with this? But before we dismiss, dismiss this too quickly, I, I do think it's worth pointing out, like, if you, if you stop and take a moment to think about the, these moments, maybe it's recent, maybe it's five years ago, maybe it's 20 years ago, I don't know, whenever it was, one of your deepest moments of anger, maybe it's directed at a person or a group of people or where you work, or I don't, whatever, what kinds of things were going through your head? Things that no one knows, things that you've never shared with anybody. We're right to be scandalized this from, from one angle, but if, if it's scandalous, it should probably be because if we're honest, most of us, maybe not wishing things to fall on children or whatever, but we've all got this potential reaction within us. I think. I do. So we get a little context here. We, there we go. There's, there's no massaging this. There's no like, well, if you really understand the Hebrew vocabulary, you know, what you'll see is that this is actually he's asking God to serve them. You know, we, there's, no, there's no Jedi mind trick to do here. This is, this is just what it is. That's what David is asking of God. Let's look at the situation that prompted David to get there. Well, in verses 1 through 5, we saw that David was personally wronged, and he's, he describes this slander and this opposition. He says there's these people that he's, he's just giving, uh, he's giving his love to, he's being honest with, he's been kind toward, but all they do is respond with evil. All they do is accuse. All they do is spread lies about him. So he's got this sort of personal wronging, and, and it you know, may have been even more than just the way they're talking about him. I assume it is. So David's concerned about that. I've been wronged. More than that, verses 21 through 29, David says uh, part of his concern is couched in just concern for, for the reputation of God or the name of God. He's worried that as David, as, as the anointed king of Israel, would be mocked in this way, would be harmed in this way, would be slandered in this way, that God's reputation is on the line as well. And he's concerned there in verses 21 through 29. But then another one, maybe, maybe the one that would give us at least a little bit of sympathy for David comes in verses 16 through 20, which I'll read. He, he's talking about what these people are doing. He says, he did not remember to show kindness, but he pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. So it's not like David's dealing with some innocent party here. He's, he's dealing with people who, who targeted some of the most vulnerable of their, <laughs> of their society and killed them. 
that these are people who loved to curse. And, and, and David has these rep repetitions here where he says he loved to curse, so let curses come upon him. Da David's asking for proportionality here. The amount of injustice that these people have shown, may it be done to them also. May it be done to them also. He did not delight in blessing, so may blessing never come. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. And may it happen every day, he says. May it be like a garment he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. So there's a sense of proportionality that David, David feels is justified here. So let's go back to David, David's request. What is David doing? I see at least three things here in those verses. One is that this is a plea for justice. This isn't him you know, railing against someone who's, who's perfect and blameless. This is a plea for God to act against someone who's actively been killing the most needy amongst them. So, so he's crying out for justice. And, and a quote that's just stuck with me ever since I read it, I'm actually going to be leading uh, one of the book clubs this summer through this book if you're interested in joining. Um, but this book I've, I've referenced in sermons a few times. It's called Reading While Black. And Esau Macaulay, he's an Anglican priest. Um, he, he talks about the uniquely powerful place that some of these psalms have had uh, for black Christians in America over the centuries. And he's talking about Psalm 137. Um, but here's, here's what he says. He says, but what kind of person of faith could ask that babies' heads be dashed on rocks, which is in it's the conclusion of Psalm 137. And in what sense can we receive these texts as in a meaningful sense Christian? In response, I ask, what kind of prayer would you expect Israel to pray after watching the murder of their children and the destruction of their families? What kinds of words of vengeance lingered in the hearts of black slave women and men when they found themselves at the mercy of their enslavers' passions? Psalm 137 is not merely a shout of defiance. It's a prayer addressed to God. Traumatized communities must be able to tell God the truth about what they feel. We must trust that God can handle those emotions. God can listen to our cries for vengeance. And here's, this is key. And as the one sovereign over history, he gets to choose how to respond. So there's a plea for justice. That moves us right into the second thing. This is a sincere expression of anger. And, and some, some commentators suspect that probably David was using hyperbole. Like, it's a poem. And he's writing. He's, he's crafting it. And he's trying to express what he's feeling. Maybe he didn't genuinely want the children to suffer this way. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. He wrote it down. We know that much. That's something. Maybe there's hyperbole involved, part of, part of the way he's expressing this artistically, but either way, it's a sincere expression of anger. And don't pretend, I, th I think we should, none of us should pretend that we are above this kind of anger. If you do, it's probably because you've never really been pushed, you've never really suffered, you've never really seen injustice and evil for all that it really is, or, or because you're lying to yourself. 
Uh, again, Eugene Peterson, in that same book, he says, we must pray who we actually are, not who we think we should be. That's it right there. Sincere prayer is not prayer that comes before God sort of like, you know, putting our makeup on and covering things up and like, let me, pre- let me put my best foot forward with you, God. This is what I feel, God. What are you going to do about it? Sincere prayer is sincere. And then here's the most crucial point. Macaulay said this, but, but we see that what David does at the end is that he turns it over all to God. Notice, as we, you can go back and say this, David never asks, here, and to my knowledge, in any of the imprecatory psalms, he never says, God, give me the strength to go do this to my enemy. He never says, God, I'm going to go do this to my enemy. He never, he never asks for agency. He turns it over to God. And he ends the Psalms in verses 30, through 30 and 31. I'll just read them. He says, With my mouth I'll give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. He ends this psalm reaffirming his trust in God and God's character, vowing to publicly thank and praise God. And whatever God decides to do in his perfect justice, whatever he decides to do, David knows that God is ultimately loving, caring, and on the side of the downtrodden. And Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, I, I've quoted this a few times, um, Tim Keller kind of, kind of popularized this, he quotes this a lot in his sermons, but, um, but Volf, he writes frequently about how in the face of true and severe evil, the only thing that could end the cycle of retribution and tit for tat and you know, you took one of mine, now I'm going to take one of yours, is this idea. That there is a God who sees it all, whose character is good and just, and who promises to one day put it right. If that's true, I can set my sword down. I don't have to go get, get mine. Because there is someone who knows far better than me, who is ju- more just than other, but he's not swayed the way that I am, who will put it right. That's where God is judged becomes really good news. We're kind of like, we don't like that idea often, but it's crucial if it's not going to be escalating blood feuds in our world. And this is from, from someone whose family was torn to shreds. He saw the power of setting it at the feet of God, and saying, you do what's, here's how I feel, God. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Now you go do what's right. That's it. That's it. That's the key to understanding these psalms. And David is not asking, God, give me a bigger sword so I can go do this. He's saying, I feel this way. You do it. So what about us? Can we pray? Can we pray Psalm 109? It's Christians. I have a few things, a few guiding principles for us from this. I, th- I think number one is, is just know, of course, we can have illegitimate anger. The point of this talk isn't to indulge every time we're angry, say, oh, it's probably perfectly justified. There's no hint of sin in that or whatever. We can acknowledge that. There's illegitimate anger. But that said, anger is a good and right response to evil when we encounter it. And don't ignore your anger. 
don't stuff it down. Don't think that it, it makes you more pious to pretend that you're somehow above anger. Don't over-spiritualize it. Explore it. Process it. Write it down. Poke at it. Share it in community. But don't play this game of pretending like it's not there, if it is. Number two, we should be honest with ourselves and with God about what we're feeling. He can handle it. If he can handle this, and Psalm 137, he can handle whatever you can throw at him. So, so, like, pretending that we don't have this anger when we do isn't the path to be able to deal with it in a healthy way. It's a, it's a path toward it bubbling up in some place later on and actually becoming really destructive. So be honest with yourself, with your community, and with God about what you feel, even if it's white-hot anger. Number three, like David did, lay down our desire for vengeance or to get even or for whatever at the feet of God. And that doesn't mean that we can't work for justice and reform in this world, of course. Please don't hear me saying that. But for you as an individual, when you're motivated by bloodlust, when you're like, I'm going to go and I'm going to make this right with whatever the equivalent of the sword is in this situation, you lay it at the foot of the cross. Say, God, here's how I feel, and I'm going to trust you to be the good and perfect judge and to make this right. And that's point number four. It's to trust God to do what is right. And it very likely will not be the thing you're asking for. That's important. It very well will not be the thing you're asking for. In his wisdom, he may go, no. But it's still the right thing to bring to him. If that's what you want, if that's what you're asking for, if that's how you feel, bring it to him. Process it with him. Be honest with him. And he might say, no, that's not what I'm doing. And that's okay. He's on the throne. We're not. So what did God do about this particular injustice? We have these little sketches of the situation in David's life, Psalm 109. What did God do? Did he bring his wrath on these people the way David wanted him to here? We don't know. We can't say for sure what episode from David's life this was from, if it's even one that was recorded in the scriptures. We don't know who his enemies were here. Really anything about the situation except what's in the psalm itself, which is a poem. But friends, I... <laughs> I don't do this a lot, but I, t I teared up in my office when this, this hit me. Maybe on Tuesday it was. Whatever happened in the short term, I I'm not sure. God already knew that his eternal plan was in motion to finally deal with all the evil and injustice and sin in the world. And more than that, he knew that every time someone was justified to plead with him and call for the judgment, justice, or wrath of God against someone else's sin, it was also just for the same to be called down on, his, on everyone's own sin. The tragic reality is that every single person to some degree or another is both victim of someone else's sin and victimizer of other people with our own sin. We all sit in both of those seats. Not in the same ways, not to the same degree, but we sit in both seats to some degree. 
And so every cry for God to bring judgment against someone else's sin was necessarily a cry for God to bring judgment against your own sin and my own sin. So where does that leave us? This is the part where I, I, I choked up in my office because I, I didn't see this in these psalms before this week. Do you know how God ultimately answered this prayer? God, judge and do it severely. Do it mercilessly. It did come down. And it came down on the Son of God. <laughs> on David's great-great-grandson, actually. God's answer was, yes, I will do that. But I'll do it to myself. I'll be the victim. I'll bear the full force of it. Little did David know what he was asking for, for the crushing of his son and his Lord Jesus in place of David's own sin, and these people's sin, and your sin, and my sin. And that's the final key to understanding these cursing songs, uniquely as Christians. We're, we're on the other side of the cross now. And we know that God's final answer to each of these pleas to curse, to hurt, to humble, to ruin, to kill was to bring it down onto himself. God in human flesh, King Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, if you've come to believe that Jesus is that good, that loving, that gracious, that self-giving, then you can have confidence that no matter how dark your anger, you can take it to him. He'll meet you with grace, and he'll do what's right in response, even if it's not what you're asking. And even before we know <clears throat> what he's ultimately going to do in response to our angry prayers, in the here and now, you know, a lot, we're talking about cosmic, like, in the end, he's going to make all things right, new heavens, a new earth, of course, but, but, you know, there's still pain tomorrow, and next week, and a year from now, and five years from now. And we don't know how these prayers are going to get answered in the short term. But nonetheless, if this is the kind of God we serve, we can pray sincerely with David the close of this psalm. I'll read it again. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. That's who he is. We can take our anger to God. What he does with it will surprise us every time. He's good. And he does not give us excuse to pick up the sword and go get vengeance. He says, trust me. Don't pretend that you're not feeling the way that you do. Bring it to me. In as grotesque of terms as you know how to put it, I can handle it. But the final answer is going to be the cross. Every time. And that changes everything. <laughs>